Hello, my name's Geoffrey Palmer. I'm a lawyer. I used to be a politician. I was the Attorney General, Deputy Prime Minister, and then Prime Minister of New Zealand. Uh, what I want to talk to you about today are the international disputes that I've been involved in, both when I was a minister in New Zealand, but also since when I've been uh, a uh, law practitioner and an advisor. And what I'm interested in doing is trying to provide tips and insights that may help people who are involved in international disputes. I don't claim to have any profound theory that governs what I'm about to say. These are simply the lessons of experience. They may be valid, they may not be. It will all depend on the circumstances. The disputes I want to talk about, some of them are quite old, some of them are quite new. The first one is the issue of nuclear testing in French Polynesia that went to the International Court of Justice not once but twice. The second is the dispute that New Zealand had with the United States over New Zealand's anti-nuclear policy. The third dispute that I want to talk about is New Zealand's dispute with France over the Rainbow Warrior affair. You may not recall this, but the Rainbow Warrior was sunk in Auckland Harbour on the 10th of July 1985 by agents of the French government. Then there is the United Nations inquiry into the Gaza flotilla incident of the 31st of May 2010. And the final dispute that I want to deal with are the efforts to reach diplomatic rapprochement uh, with the International Whaling Commission. I was New Zealand's whaling commissioner on the International Whaling Commission for eight years. Now these are very different sorts of disputes. Some of them are bilateral, some of them are multilateral. Uh, but there are a number of things about all disputes that it's necessary to keep in mind. And the first thing you have to keep in mind is the Charter of the United Nations. The Charter of the United Nations has as one of its central purposes the requirement set out in Article 2.3 that all its members are to settle international disputes by peaceful means. Now let's just read what Article 33 says. The parties to any dispute the continuance of which is likely to endanger the maintenance of international peace and security, shall, first of all, seek a solution by negotiation, inquiry, mediation, conciliation, arbitration, judicial settlement, resort to regional agencies or arrangements, or other peaceful means of their own choice. That's a substantial menu. There are there a lot of options. I want to go into some of them, and I also want to say that there are a few things that you have to think about at the beginning. The first thing you think about at the beginning is how do you know when you have a dispute? Uh, disagreement uh, or a sense of grievance doesn't amount to an international dispute. And you need to have disagreement on a point of law 
or a fact, you need to have conflict in the legal views between two states. Um, to the degree that there is uncertainty in the relationships between the states as a result of that disagreement. The second thing that I think you need to have, and this is a general point, you need to think creatively about what the dispute is actually about. Now that is an intellectual process that really has to be carried out rigorously at the beginning. Because how the dispute is characterised or framed will be an important ingredient in its resolution. There will be, for all disputes, legal channels of solving them and political channels for solving them. Both have to be thought about carefully. You know, diplomacy is one thing. Usually that involves negotiation, which was the first element in the Charter provision that I drew attention to. Uh, but the others of inquiry, mediation, conciliation, arbitration and judicial settlement, they are different, quite different from negotiation. There are gradations of difference between them, but what is involved here is at the top end compulsory adjudication by a court. Now that leads me to the third point, the third general point. Whichever method of dispute settlement uh, is used, the relevant international law will be an important factor. So, my advice to you is research it properly at the beginning. Do not wait until the end when you are involved in one of these dispute settlements because the method may have, the choice of the method may have something to do with the strength of your legal position. You need to know the strengths and weaknesses of your own legal position at the outset, so research it hard and get outside advice, that is to say, advice outside the government if you need to. Because analysis at the beginning of an international dispute will prevent the need for bluster at the end of it. The fourth point that I want to make is that politics is a very important factor in the resolution of international disputes. Ministers of governments make the decisions on resolving them. Ministers need to make those decisions knowing what the legal position is and what the ongoing legal consequences of their choices may be. I want to stress that in my view, law is a lot in international disputes, but it is not everything. And you really have to understand that. International law operates in a different fashion from domestic law, and it's really important to understand the differences in that regard. Uh, the political imperatives of sovereign governments will always be at play in international disputes. If you ignore that, you will ignore it at your peril. Now, what I'm saying to legal advisers in that respect is quite simple. Legal advisers are not politicians. But legal advisers need to be sensitive 
to the political dimensions of the dispute that they are engaged in advising on legally. They are not actors in the political decision-making process, but they need to understand it and think about it, even though they're not advising on it. So the hierarchy of methods that are available for dealing with your dispute goes from negotiation, which covers every category of dispute, uh, to dispute mechanisms that may be laid down in treaties that say which dispute mechanism you have to take. Sometimes that isn't a choice that's available because it may be laid down in the international instrument that gave rise to the dispute. But disputes that are both bilateral and multilateral can be settled by negotiation most of the time. States like negotiations because they remain in the driver's seat. But they don't like third party adjudication very much because they lose control of the dispute and it goes to a third party. So the higher up that dispute resolution hierarchy you go, the more resistance you are likely to strike from political people. The difficulty is that often negotiations cannot and do not solve the disputes. And the question therefore is you have to move up the hierarchy. Now, I want to say this, that one trouble with negotiations is that they can be endless. Not resolving the dispute now is often better than concluding that there has been a failure to resolve it. So you continue with the negotiations in the forlorn hope that one day you may solve it by negotiations. Um, and often governments like keeping it going in the hope that time will heal it anyway. Uh, sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Now, allegations of bad faith are quite common in international disputes and it's pretty hard to find out what bad faith is or isn't and often those arguments are futile and I advise you to avoid accusing your other party of bad faith. <laughs> Inquiry, mediation and conciliation are all related. There's a whole lot of international law on that, the Hague Conventions for the Pacific Settlement of International Disputes of 1899 and 1907. Uh, but that's not in the nature of adjudication, those inquiry, mediation and conciliation. It's left up to the parties in those cases to decide what to do with the result of those processes. Now, I just want to say a word or two about compulsory adjudication because that's at the top of the hierarchy. And there is a lot of uh, discussion about the International Court of Justice and where that sits and how you get there. Uh, we know that most nations don't accept the compulsory jurisdiction of the court. Uh, and indeed, um, it was a very contentious matter when the United Nations was set up as to whether you would have to accept the compulsory jurisdiction of the court. But you don't have to, but 66 nations do. But that often overlooks that there are a large number of other treaties which lay down that you must accept the compulsory jurisdiction of the court in relation to those treaties. Uh, and uh, there are about 250 of them. 
So sometimes you may be in compulsory adjudication by the International Court of Justice even though you don't want to be. But for the most part, you won't be if you're not bound by the optional clause. Now, one of the things that you will do in a dispute is try and prepare, and what will you look at? I must say that in both the International Whaling Commission and in the Gaza Flotilla incident, the books I found most useful and practical were from the Harvard Negotiation Project. Roger Fisher's International Conflict for Beginners and Roger Fisher and William Urey's Getting to Yes. If you're engaged in an international negotiation, you've got to avoid a lot of pitfalls such as situational bargaining. And to get on top of that, those books are very useful. I mean, whatever techniques are used, however, in relation to your dispute, it needs to be understood that not all disputes can be solved. Uh, and you really have to recognise that at the beginning. Uh, because if they can be solved, they may not be capable of being solved at the time that, dis that, that you're trying to solve it. So the affliction of time is probably the most emollient way of addressing any dispute because passions cool and other priorities take over. Any dispute has to be ripe for resolution in order to be resolved and making judgments about when that time has come is a really difficult matter and you can't lay down hard and fast rules about it but you have to think about it. I have been in a number of international disputes uh, where I've seen great unwillingness to compromise but if you're going to actually solve a dispute compromise is well nigh inevitable. Now, one other point. The United Nations is a diplomatic organisation. Uh, as jo Judge Rosalind Higgins has said, the United Nations is the key institution in the endeavour to avoid, contain and resolve disputes. So if you're a little country, and New Zealand's a little country, and we try and believe in the rule of law here because it protects us against big and powerful nations, uh, but if you're, you, you really need help from the UN and you can often get it. So if you've got a lot of trouble and it's a big dispute, see what, you can, what help you can get from the United Nations. Having made those preliminary points, let me just now start on the disputes. The nuclear test cases went to the International Court of Justice not once, but twice. Uh, and the common thread running through those cases was the anti-nuclear sentiment that became very strongly established over a long period in the minds of the New Zealand public. Uh, the dispute with France was notable for the lengthy periods that it endured for one period, for one, in one form or, or, or another. Now, the Australia and New Zealand, they went to the International Court of Justice in the 1970s and argued that French nuclear testing was contrary to international law. New Zealand argued that the French government tests, and these were atmospheric tests, in the South Pacific gave rise to radioactive fallout that constituted a violation of New Zealand's rights. The court gave interim relief. It indicated uh, that pending further stays of the case, France should cease testing. 
In December 1974, the court held, following the issuance of a media released by the French government, that since France had promised not to test nuclear weapons in the atmosphere and was bound by its own promise to that effect, that the proceedings that Australia and New Zealand had brought in the International Court of Justice were at an end. In other words, it said the case is moot. You've got what you want, it's over. But in 1995, that case was resumed by New Zealand because the French, having stopped atmospheric tests, went underground and blasted the Muarora Atoll to points where we thought serious environmental damage would ensue. Uh, and so uh, I was made the ad hoc judge uh, at the International Court of Justice for New Zealand when that case was resumed. New Zealand lost its application to reopen the case by 12 votes to three in the court. Despite the result, however, the purposes of the New Zealand government were well served by that case in the view of the then Prime Minister, Jim Bolger, because, he said, it brought political pressure to bear on France on the nuclear issue. Uh, and Mr Bolger said after it was over that the government remained satisfied with the decision to bring the case. He said, and I quote, the case received great attention internationally and this without doubt added to the pressure on France to cease testing. So the lesson from that is sometimes litigation might be worthwhile even if you don't think you're going to win. The next dispute I want to deal with is the dispute with the United States that New Zealand had over New Zealand's anti-nuclear policy. The 1951 ANZUS Treaty between the United States, Australia and New Zealand was signed in 1951, just days before the peace treaty ending the Second World War with Japan was concluded. And you can see the logic that it was impelling Australia and New Zealand in relation to that defensive treaty. Uh, now, the fourth Labour government was elected in New Zealand in 1984 on a policy pledge to declare New Zealand nuclear-free and work actively for a nuclear weapons-free zone in the South Pacific. And Labor Party conferences for years had been passing resolutions to ban nuclear-powered and nuclear-armed ships from New Zealand ports. Now, uh, obviously, that had an effect on our ally, their then ally, the United States, but the precise nature of the obligation that New Zealand had, from a legal point of view, under the ANZUS Treaty, uh, was not clear because of the loose and general manner in which the language of that obligation was expressed. The Americans took the view in that dispute that if you're having an alliance with the United States, uh, you would be defended by nuclear weapons and you were obliged to accept ship visits with nuclear weapons on board. New Zealand said, we can't see that in the treaty. Where is it? Where are the words? It wasn't there. Uh, and so there was really quite a big dispute that interfered with the relationships of the two nations over this issue. But that dispute was never resolved. After a long period of diplomatic negotiation, uh, in the end, um, what uh, Mr. Schultz, the then Secretary of State of the United States, said was this. We tried hard to see if there isn't some way that this could be worked through, but there are certain hard realities you have to face, and I think in the end New Zealand chose, as it had a right to do, basically to withdraw itself from the alliance 
by denying port access and we're sorry about that. I miss New Zealand and as I said at my meeting with Prime Minister Longy in Manila only a few weeks ago, we part as friends. Now, from the New Zealand point of view, that didn't seem quite right. Uh, but, but the point was that there were important legal elements in that dispute, uh, especially the proper interpretation of the treaty, but the matter was handed, handled politically in the end because that suited both sides for, for their own reasons. New Zealand didn't want to press the point about whether it had a legal obligation to accept uh, nuclear armed ships and the United States didn't want to press it either. Uh, and so while there were serious discussions uh, about those issues, in the end we agreed to differ about the legal questions. And that often happens in the international arena and international lawyers and ministers often find that the most convenient way out. Both sides knew that their legal positions were really irreconcilable, but they didn't want to go through any adjudicative process about what, who might be right. I then turned to the Rainbow Warrior. The Rainbow Warrior, from New Zealand's point of view, was a really serious dispute. Having a friendly country sink a ship that is one of, in one of your ports and killing a man on it is, uh, is a pretty serious matter by any standards. Uh, and uh, when uh, I gave the speech in 1985 to the General Assembly for New Zealand complaining that France as a nuclear weapon state continues to test nuclear explosives against the manifest and long established wish of all the countries in the area that the activities should cease. And I then went on to recite the events of the sinking and death of one of the crewmen, a Dutch national of the Rainbow Warrior, an arrest of the two French nationals charged with murder and arson who had been apprehended by the New Zealand police. And I pointed out that France had acknowledged that the French Secret Service agents did indeed sink the ship, acting under orders. And uh, the next day in New York I started negotiations with the French Foreign Minister, Dr Roland Dumas. Now, you might think that that was a dispute you could take to the International Court of Justice because that sort of seems to be a fairly egregious violation of international law, but you couldn't because France terminated its acceptance of the compulsory jurisdiction of the court over the nuclear test cases that I mentioned earlier. So they no longer accepted the compulsory jurisdiction of the court. And unless France would voluntarily accept an arbitral tribunal, there was nowhere that New Zealand could go. But the interesting thing about it is that as matters developed, such an adjudication would have been impossible anyway, uh, because there were wider political considerations that had to be weighed on both sides. Uh, New Zealand felt it could only agree to a settlement about this if, if the claims of Greenpeace were adequately looked after and the dead person, because the public were pretty outraged about that and they wanted some justice for, for him and his family. But he was a Dutch national. New Zealand could not assert the claims of a Dutch national at any international forum. So as a matter of international law, there were some complications, but as a matter of political imperatives, there were even greater complications. Uh, because 
We were saying, and New Zealand was saying, that it was a political imperative that decent arrangements be made, uh, but uh, we couldn't insist on it. Uh, France had a demand a bit like that too. They wanted their soldiers back. Uh, they weren't entitled to them back as a matter of international law, but they certainly wanted them back. So uh, the other thing is that New Zealand could not tolerate interference uh, with its political, with its legal processes that were going on uh, to sentence the prisoners. And they were sentenced to 10 years imprisonment for manslaughter by the Chief Justice. And after that, negotiations became much more serious. But from the point of view of the New Zealand Cabinet, what became known as the release to freedom was, was really not acceptable because the public was so upset about all of this. So really the politics was central to this problem because reparation and an apology, which New Zealand was entitled to under international law, could only be secured by releasing the prisoners to France while New Zealand had the legal power to do this, it wasn't obliged to do so, and the political heat from doing it was just very high indeed. And what looked good to France, uh, which was the release of the prisoners, was not a matter they had a legal right to, uh, and New Zealand wouldn't agree to it. So the negotiations became very bogged down. Now, to cut a long story short, how was that resolved? Well, it was resolved completely in the end by the following ways. The negotiations bogged down, but France and New Zealand, the, the, the Netherlands Prime Minister intervened and said he thought that this was really important to solve this dispute and he suggested that that be done. As a result, New Zealand and, and France approached the Secretary General of the United Nations and said, look, will you make a ruling on this? Now, that ruling was not quite what it seemed because France and New Zealand negotiated secretly in Switzerland about what most of the elements of that ruling would be. And, and this is another point that I commend to people who get involved in nasty disputes. Make sure, you, you, megaphone diplomacy doesn't work in disputes of this sort. When you've got an inflamed public opinion, they don't really, you've got to, you've got to find a way of getting the negotiations done which are not public. Secret diplomacy, there is a place for it. So behind the scenes, most elements of the binding ruling had been secretly negotiated. Uh, and the reasons were essentially two. Domestic opinion in both countries was highly charged over the issue. A settlement negotiated bilaterally did not carry respect, the respected imprimatur of a third party and that could have increased the level of domestic criticism for both countries about accepting it. Uh, furthermore, uh, if the elements are negotiated between uh, the two countries, their ministers keep control of the matter, and that's very important to ministers. So uh, the second thing is that closed diplomacy often works uh, better in an inflamed situation than, than megaphone diplomacy, and I can't make that point too strongly. So, but the Secretary General himself did settle the amount of compensation to be paid uh, by France to New Zealand. We got $7 million for all the police costs and, and, and we got an apology and compensation. 
and France undertook not to uh, uh, stop our imports of butter to the United Kingdom, and a binding arbitration clause was set in there uh, in case any uh, France or anyone was in breach of their, of their obligations. And two years later, the arbitration provisions had to be used because France took the two soldiers away from Howe Atoll, where under the agreement they were to be imprisoned in French territory in the Pacific, and took them back to France. Now I won't go into the circumstances about that, but we took, uh, we invoked the arbitration clause and got further reparation for France for their breach of the arbitration clause. And although that was a terribly bitter and difficult dispute with big political implications, it's now been entirely solved and put behind us, uh, and and that is really very gratifying. Can I then move on to the panel on the Gaza flotilla of the 31st of May 2010? On that day, a flotilla of six vessels was boarded and taken over by the Israeli Defence Forces, 72 nautical miles from land. The vessels were carrying people and humanitarian supplies. The flotilla had been directed to change course by the Israeli forces who stated that the coast of Gaza was under a naval blockade Nine passengers lost their lives and many others were wounded as a result of the use of force during the takeover operation by Israeli forces. <clears throat> the Secretary General established a panel of inquiry uh, that I chaired. Now the panel received and reviewed reports of detailed national investigations. Uh, th those investigations were conducted by both nation states, Turkey and Israel. Turkey established a National Commission of Inquiry uh, and uh, indeed uh, there was an independent Commission of Inquiry set up by Israel as well. The panel reviewed the reports that it got from these states. It, it got further information and clarification in written form and by direct meetings uh, with the points of contact that were appointed by each government. And in light of the information so gathered, the panel examined and identified the facts, circumstances and context of the incident and considered and recommended ways of avoiding such incidents in the future. Now, of course, a panel of inquiry like that is not acting like a court. It wasn't asked to adjudicate on questions of legal liability and its findings and recommendations weren't intended to attribute any legal responsibilities. But the aim was to try and bring the parties together so they could arrive at a resolution of the matter. We were told to operate by consensus, but despite the best efforts, because there were representatives of both Turkey and Israel on the panel, it wasn't possible to reach a consensus. So the chair and the vice chair produced a report uh, and uh, an inquiry like that, is, its methodology is really diplomatic uh, because the United Nations has no coercive powers to compel the production of evidence and, and provide witnesses to be examined. Uh, but for all that, uh, we got a fair way with investigating this on the basis of the material provided to us. Uh, and um, the the essence of what I want to say about that is that if you as a little government get involved in some, or even a big government, in a, in a, in a very bad dispute, uh, the, these panels are set up by the United Nations quite often. 
and they are designed to try and put pressure on both sides to try and resolve their differences. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't, uh, but for all that, uh, it, is, it is always to be borne in mind that the United Nations can help, and help a great deal, especially when it's a serious matter. And there have been, there's been a growing tendency to set up these panels of inquiry at the UN. Sometimes the Secretary General sets them up, as he did to examine the human rights abuses arising out of the end of the Civil War in Sri Lanka. Uh, and there are many other instances. The General Assembly can set them up. Also, the Human Rights Council can set them up and does so. But the first task of my panel was to try and find out what happened. That proved actually to be difficult, uh, but in the report we set out analytical summaries of the material that was put to us. Uh, there were over 700 passengers from 40 countries on one of these vessels. Uh, one of them had 590 passengers and it was on that vessel that all the casualties occurred because the boarding was resisted. Now I don't want to deal here with the findings. Uh, these matters are still under active consideration. But what I am in interested in is how a panel can contribute to the resolution of a dispute. And the short conclusion about that is that if nations who are having a dispute want to use it as a means of resolving it, they can. But whatever techniques are used and whatever findings are made, it is the ingredient of political will from ministers who are involved that is the critical variable. It's a matter of public record that in relation to the Gaza panel, bilateral negotiations to resolve the issues put before the panel continued alongside the panel's work. The panel wasn't involved in this, but the development clearly created the political context within which it carried out its work. And the purpose of the panel was to identify the facts, circumstances and context of the incident and to recommend ways of avoiding such incidents in the future. A bilateral settlement between the states was devoutly to be wished for. It came close to being achieved, uh, but in the end, it wasn't. And that point just underlines the fundamental fact that disputes in this world can only be resolved where in the judgment of national leaders, it is in the national interest, as determined by them, that they should be resolved. The United Nations is a very useful catalyst, as the Rainbow Warrior illustrates, but it can't force nations to settle their differences. Now, I come now to a very different matter, the International Whaling Commission. The dispute at the International Whaling Commission was of a different sort than the others that I have been analysing. First of all, it is a multilateral body, Secondly, it is not a United Nations body, uh, and the dispute that is at the centre of the International Whaling Commission uh, is the fact that a large number of nations in the world, there are 89 members of the International Whaling Commission, about half of them want to go whaling or, or would support going whaling, although only three nations really actively whale, a large number of other nations, of which New Zealand is one, don't think that any whaling should happen. They think that whales should be preserved for a whole lot of reasons related to biodiversity and things of that nature. Now, 
This has been a fuss, a big international fuss at the International Whaling Commission for 20 years. In 1986, a, a moratorium on commercial whaling went into force and Japan and other countries, Iceland, uh, were not able to go commercial whaling. Uh, the result of not being able to go commercial whaling was that they looked through the treaty very carefully and they found in it Article 8, which says, Notwithstanding anything contained in this convention, any contracting government may grant to any of its nationals a special permit authorising that nation to kill, take and treat whales for the purposes of scientific research subject to such restrictions for the purposes of scientific research and, and number and to such other conditions as the contracting governments think fit. Now that's a very wide power. If you don't, if you look at the whaling convention which prohibits commercial whaling, you are nevertheless entitled to go commercial whaling under, at least not commercial whaling, you're entitled to go scientific whaling under Article 8 uh, and you as a nation who is a member of the International Whaling Commission decide how many whales you will take. Now um, this becomes a very, very difficult matter uh, because whales are iconic megafauna they catch the imagination of the public, they are remarkably efficient fundraisers for NGOs, uh, and the eight years I spent as New Zealand's commissioner at the International Whaling Commission, I found it was a very difficult experience because there was a clash of views that was very strongly and passionately held on both sides. One side saying, you shouldn't ever kill whales, they are iconic megafauna. And the other side saying, there's no difference between whales and sheep or cattle. You should be able to harvest them sustainably. Now, uh, it's very hard to bring those two positions together. Uh, because when the moratorium on commercial whaling came into force in 1986, it was regarded as one of the great achievements of modern environmentalism. Uh, and it was achieved by a schedule amend amendment to the convention. Uh, which required a 75% majority. Now, that's the thing. This convention allows a 75% majority to make most of the important rules. But Article 8 about scientific whaling can't be dealt with that way. It's part of the convention and cannot be amended uh, by the process for making other rules. And you've got a diplomatic standoff. You can't force nations who don't want to, to change the treaty. Uh, and, and, and it becomes very, very difficult because here you have, in 1946, an international convention set up with 15 signatory countries, all of whom were whalers, who were trying to regulate whaling. And now the international community wants to conserve whales, or a large part of it does, and the nations who want to go whaling say, say, well, this convention was set up to allow us to whale and you won't allow us to whale. Um, so the International Whaling Commission became paralysed for years uh, between these two views. Uh, and 
rancorous fights were held. It was more like an unruly parliament than an international organisation. And the bitterness of the debates was really a reflection of fundamental philosophical differences uh, between uh, the nations who believed different things. Now, I think it's important to say that despite the, the uh, uh, moratorium on commercial whaling, about 1,867 whales in 2010 were killed um, by various means. Uh, many of them, uh, Norway for example, always objected to the uh, provision about uh, uh, the moratorium, so it was never bound by it. Um, Iceland and uh, Iceland left the convention and then rejoined it to avoid being bound by the moratorium. And Japan went scientific whaling in order to avoid, uh, one would say, some people would say, uh, other people not, the moratorium. So after terrible diplomatic problems, an effort was made to try and repair the breaches. A compromise proposal was negotiated over a couple of years to create a 10-year interim period of stability during which no major decisions would be made and th this would not require nations to change their philosophical or legal positions that I've just outlined uh, on commercial whaling or whaling under reservations uh, but at the same time, the proposal would have brought all whaling under full IWC control because the agreement would have set out the number of whales that be, could be killed in each country and that would be that. They couldn't be, you couldn't uh, allow yourself to give any more permits for scientific whaling. Now, those arrangements uh, did involve, as I said, when I, I was chairing the group in the Whaling Commission that that uh, was negotiating this, uh, and at an intersessional meeting in 2010, I told them in Florida that uh, delegates would have to swallow a dead rat if this uh, settlement was to work. Uh, and in the end, um, the support group couldn't get agreement on uh, the number of whales to be killed, uh, although we came very close. And at the meeting of the Whaling Commission at Agadir, it was only a uh, hundred or two whales in the Southern Ocean uh, that, that, that prevented an agreement being reached, uh, in my view. But in any event, the result was that agreement wasn't reached uh, and it remains on the international agenda. Well, what can you learn from all of that? Well, first of all, I think you have to be very modest about any accomplishments in this area. They're very hard to come by. Uh, disputes between nations at an international level are not, uh, they are solved quite often, but they're solved by a variety of methods of which adjudication is probably the least prevalent. Political incentives are the key driver and often the range of political positions cannot be reconciled because nations are not prepared to make compromises. And the continued extension of a dispute is sometimes judged by ministers to have greater political advantage than do the terms upon which a resolution can be obtained. But remember that the shadow of the law hovers as an important influence over every dispute and it's frequently a factor in the settlement whether or not the dispute involves an adjudication or arbitration. 
Mediation, conciliation and negotiation will often involve legal principles and legal positions uh, that are taken, as well as political factors. The ANZUS dispute that I've mentioned did not resolve the dispute about the legal requirements of the treaty. But the legal issues, although pressed, were simply not resolved because they were not submitted to any of the methods except for negotiation that I've outlined. The Rainbow Warrior was a case where the law was very clear, but its implementation was very difficult because of extraneous political factors in which the law was not a factor, uh, but which were essential in the minds of the domestic decision makers in both countries. And those factors, I think, bore down upon how the decision looked in each capital. There were highly unpalatable political downsides to be swallowed in both countries. In the end, however, complete resolution was achieved. And then there's the UN. In both the Rainbow Warrior and the Gaza Flotilla examples, the UN is used. It's an active body which can do things and produce rapprochement if the circumstances and conditions are right, and always remember that. Uh, the impasse reached at the International Whaling Commission uh, is now directly going to the International Court of Justice. Australia is taking it there, uh, a case against Japan on the validity of its use of Article 8 of the Convention to issue permits for scientific whaling. And it's interesting to note that both Australia and Japan accept the compulsory jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice. So whether a dispute can be resolved or not resolved it depends not so much on the method of dispute settlement uh, employed as the political incentives at work on decision makers to resolve the dispute. Uh, this is primarily the province of ministers although the advice of officials and lawyers can be of great help, and you really do have to know your legal position in all of these matters. But there are political factors at large in every dispute, and general rules about them cannot be propounded in my view. It depends on the circumstance. There is, however, and I just make this point in conclusion, there is, in, however, in my view, however, more scope for compulsory dispute settlement by adjudication and arbitration. If that occurred, it would add to the political incentives on decision makers to arrive at resolution of these disputes. Like the prospect of market regulation and market economies, uh, compulsory third party adjudication that cannot be avoided can be a potent force in changing the behaviour by altering the incentives. More disputes would be resolved before the prospect of adjudication became a reality if it was available. And the World Trade Organisation has compulsory adjudication. So does the Law of the Sea Convention provide binding uh, procedures. These precedents are important and they indicate in some contexts at least that ministers are prepared to accept third-party adjudication. And if there was more of it, and it was more fashionable to have third-party adjudication, you would get closer to the rule of law at the international level than we are now at. Now, in conclusion, let me say, I don't know what all this means. All I know is that I lived through it, and I can't make much more of it than I've stated. Thank you very much.